Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. I'm Kevin Simmons, and uh, let's get started. Today, over the last couple of days actually, there's been some discussion about uh, when they're going to reopen high school sports and the, the uh, qualifications and ideas of how to do so safely. It has reached a point to where it's become very complicated because right now the formula seems to be for all of the major sports to open up and not have fans. And um, that makes sense to a certain degree um, for professional teams because there's always revenue, televised uh, television revenue and commercial revenue that can be made uh, from, you know, them playing without fans. But where it gets complicated is when you start talking about uh, amateur sports, high school sports, um, and stuff like minor league baseball, um, then it becomes a cost because it's very difficult to figure out a scenario in which um, they would be able to, to participate with no fans and still be able to do so, especially with uh, the financial uh, hits that the state, the counties, the cities, have all taken in terms of uh, the shutdown from this uh, coronavirus. So at this point, um, it's kind of all up in the air. Um, There has been talk of high school football games being played in empty stadiums, but I doubt if that's going to be a reality because the viability of playing those games, and I know I I don't want to make this just seem like it's a financial issue but you know let's be real Um, the revenue from that is going to be particularly essential now because of the fact that there's no uh, you know that businesses have been shut down state governments have been uh, uh, government entities are certain you know non-essential workers and businesses um, haven't had the opportunity to get paid so we're at the point right now to where decisions are tough decisions are going to have to be made Um, keep in mind that the California sections both north and south um, lost money in the spring due to the cancellation of its playoff and championship events Um, noteworthy the southern section was recently approved to receive funds the United States Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program. Um, so it will keep their the, the southern section afloat for the remainder of the fiscal year. Um, the state, other state, and other section offices uh, in, for that it will also uh, look to apply for the same kind of loan because uh, at this point. That may be the difficult. That may be the difficult decision they may have to make to be able to even you know continue to run their offices and do what they do in the section offices. Um, when it comes to private schools, this could really impact them. 
because uh, with you know so many furloughs and work reductions or job losses, there could be a real big spike of the number of students who transfer away from private schools into public schools due to financial considerations. And because of the fact that they are private schools, um, I'm not sure what their relief would be in terms of getting loans from the federal government. So that in turn creates a whole nother set of circumstances. Um, and, and in a weird kind of side note, current transfer rules do not allow a financial component for immediate eligibility for kids who would ha- would make that transfer. So that problem, you know, is going to be an issue as well because if it's a kid that's in a private school whose family can't afford it, what are they going to do? Because if the kid transfers, he's not going to be able to participate in sports. So this is a multi-tiered problem. And under the current transfer rules... A half season sit out for these kids. I'm not sure if that would be even fair to them based on the circumstances because um, a financial hardship in this particular case would apply. But based on the rules that are already preset, um, they may not have that option. So that in itself is going to be a very interesting thing. Um, I don't think that any of this is just going to be driven by financials, but it has to have a, uh, be the right way to say it. It has to have a a strong impact on what decisions get made. Uh, You'd like to believe it's just simply health, safety, and welfare. Um, That's what I'd like to, that's my line and I'm sticking to it. But the realities are that it's a financial decision as well. So uh, what's going to end up coming? What's going to end up coming down to is uh, whether or not you have uh, some sort of construct plan that will allow these sections to uh, absorb any of these kids that are coming from private schools, and uh, that could be problematic because. It could change the fortunes of certain public school programs by getting an influx of private school kids whose parents ended up uh, having to transfer out due to the coronavirus. And so this is going to get to be fairly complicated. And I'm not sure exactly if there are any real concrete answers. It's kind of going to play on its own. That's going to, you know, create its own set of problems. Um, Like I said, the the smartest thing they did was when they just eliminated the spring session uh, in terms of this so that they wouldn't have to deal with it and won't have to deal with it until another, you know, 8, 10, 12 months. But at the same time, if depending upon where things are um, at that time, it could still be a complication as far as, uh, you know, track and field, as far as baseball, as far as 
uh, your spring sports and even the upcoming fall sports, that's going to be a complication as well because uh, when you start talking about basketball, that's going to be an issue. Um, wrestling, any of the other high school sports, it's going to really honestly come down to their the approach and the idea and foreplanning of how they're going to roll this out to make it equitable and fair for all of the parties involved. And I'm not sure if there really is a fair way to do it. And so, you know what that means. <laughs> There's going to be some people that are going to have a couple of gripes. That's just the way that's going to go. Um, whether or not, you know, anyone should be concerned about it or if that's a big deal, that's left on how you want to approach it. But the truth is, it's going to be some uh, a very big issue. And I'm not certain uh, how that's going to play out over the course of time. And, uh, you know, there are going to be, I've already heard of two high school coaches that because of the fact that right now they uh, have been furloughed or had, you know, job changes or whatever based to on this circumstance, um, they're, they're adjusting or uh, trying to figure out whether or not they're going to be able to coach at all. And that's unfortunate because, you know, in this day and age, anytime you have any coaches or any men that are out there that are wanting to work with kids and mentor kids from the aspect of sports, um, it's, you know, it's tragic when you have a situation where these people don't get that opportunity because of something outside of the way that they feel. Um, again, you know, it, it's, it, it's a enigma wrapped inside of a conundrum. <laughs> there's no, there's no one to blame here. There's no, uh, you know, obvious answer. And, you know, I'm figuring that each individual section and each individual coach or each individual, uh, you know, you know, situation will work itself out with intelligent people making the right decisions. But I find it very difficult to believe that the right decision is going to be made every single time in terms of uh, how this is going to all turn out. So the question at this point is, uh, how will it be distributed? What what sort of working plan is available? And, I'm, and right now, I'm pretty sure the section uh, administrators and commissioners are all working on a, a, a plan. Because as of this moment, I know that they're all they're preparing and they've already given the go ahead for there to be uh, practices for high school kids uh, coming up. I haven't heard any details as far as to what that uh, means in terms of whether or not uh, there'll be social distancing practice or uh, how that dynamic is going to work in terms of numbers of kids or uh, you know how many are going to be in one place at one time. It's all a whole new world. It's, it's an uh, entirely different process right now. And it's going to be played by ear. And uh, I'm not sure if we're all ready for that. Because I know myself, uh, you know, I cover high school sports uh, for my media company, ASD Sports Media. 
And I know that, you know, going to games is going to be a, a different kind of thing for me based on uh, on circumstance. Uh, when I go to games, uh, I interact with the crowd. I sit right in the middle of them. In fact, uh, one of the things that I, that I do that some people find unique and some even find annoying <laughs> is I shoot video from the stands. A lot of times people will shoot video either on the field or uh, way, way up high over the heads of the fans. And see, I don't like that. Um, I went to school to study, uh, went to, I went to film school at Washington State University for film study. And one of the things that the guy who was the teacher of my class, Dr. Robert Anderson, or Richard Anderson, I'm sorry, he believed in the authenticity of a film to uh, show it in its element so that people can, uh, you know, feel a part of what's happening and not just sitting there absorbing it. So I started taking, doing live videos during games and putting them on social media, and I do it right from the stands. And so for me now, <laughs> uh, that's gonna present some interesting <laughs> problems or interesting sets of circumstances that I'm gonna have to be prepared for. So, um, and I'm not even sure what the rules are gonna be in terms of uh, whether they're gonna be crowds or not, or whether or not, you know, everybody has to practice distancing if they do show, or how many people can be in that building, or how many people can be in the stands at a particular time. So it's, again, it's just, you know, it's all kind of being played by ear. This is uh, unprecedented. And so everyone's going to have to figure out a way on how they're going to approach this. And that includes me too and members of the media because I'll probably be covering games with a mask on and uh, wearing surgical gloves, which, you know, good, I don't know where I'm going to find surgical gloves for hands my size, but that's another story. <laughs> so um, that's, you know, the perspective of what the CIF um, has dealt with so far. And uh, the southern section has already made its moves. And so we're going to see how that entails itself in the near future. Um, this is uh, segment one of the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. Segment two will be coming shortly. This is segment two of the Simmons on Sports, the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. Segment two is a discussion or conversation, actually, um, of what's going to uh, my opinions on the last dance, which was the uh, ESPN documentary series that has run over the last uh three or four weeks which uh, surrounded the uh, Chicago Bulls and uh, the main character Michael Jordan um, my thoughts on the last dance are sort of complicated in the fact that um, a perspective from a, a documentary aspect was to get you as a uh, viewer or a fan of the game or of Michael Jordan 
to give you an inside look as to what goes on in a team dynamic in terms of how the players interact with each other, in terms of how players interact with management, in terms of how um, you know the coaching sort of techniques and uh, ideas behind uh, running an NBA franchise. And I thought that it was a unique situation to look at the dynamic with Jerry Reinsdorf, who was the uh, president of the team and the general manager, which was Jerry Krause. Um, it was an unusual dynamic in the fact that at the end of the day, Jerry Reinsdorf was in charge. That's the guy who can make decisions, the guy that can say yes or no to anything that the general manager, the coaches, or anybody um, inside that organization does. And I found it interesting <laughs> that there were times when Jerry Reinsdorf would do certain things or say certain things and there were other times when he just let Jerry Krause do whatever Jerry Krause did and some of these things were financially motivated some of them were ego driven Um, I'll go ahead and say straight out that I felt like the team being broken up was basically more about Jerry Krause's ego than it was about finances now mind you finances have a lot to do with any uh pro sports franchise or any business for that matter. But I'm of the opinion that a lot of that stuff, basically in this situation, uh, the financial part was pushed was while it was there, it was the elephant in the room. It wasn't what motivated Jerry Krause to do what he did. And I'll give you some examples as to why I felt that was, um, for some reason, the man felt as if he is he was being slighted, or as if he wasn't uh, getting the respect or proper kudos for putting together a good basketball team. Now, I don't think there's much of an argument that he did a pretty good job because um, the components all fit well, and the players that they got or and continue to add to that team as they go on also mattered. Because, see, I'm a big believer that as much as your beginning roster in the season, of an NBA season, matters a lot in terms of how it's working, it is uh, paramount that a good organization knows what people they can add to the mix that won't disrupt what's going on and actually add to it. Because with a team... Like the Bulls, they're ancillary players. Even though these were guys that you could probably walk by on the street and never know who they were, these guys played important roles. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, blow sunshine in your face and tell you that Bill Winnington is some all-star center or that Will Purdue was some all-star. I'm not going to say any of that. But I am going to say that those guys had a job to do when they were playing around with, you know, playing with Jordan and Pippen and all the rest of the guys. And they did their job. And when you are putting a team together, you got to find guys like that. And it's not always easy. Um, I remember when the Denver Nuggets picked up Allen Iverson. And, you know, most people thought, hey, that's a pretty good move because with Iverson, you know, that's instant offense. 
Well, they were thinking, okay, well, you know, when uh, we can bring him off the bench and he could help us uh, in terms of uh, getting some bench scoring and giving us a lift, you know, when the starters are in and out of the game. And he, he kind of didn't take a shine to that <laughs> because the way he saw it, and justifiably so, is that, you know, hey, man, I'm an NBA All-Star. I've led, I've led a team to the finals. And um, instead of me coming off the bench, maybe you should be thinking about some of these guys you got starting coming off the bench instead of me. And while he didn't really make a public stink like that, um, you could tell that there was an uneasiness, an uncomfortable um, set of circumstances because he never thought of himself as a bench player. And that's no different than Carmelo Anthony. When Carmelo Anthony went to Houston, and I'll never forget the press conference, he laughed when somebody asked him about coming off the bench. He thought it was funny. He's like, "Hold up, you apparently you haven't been you, you haven't been watching or keeping up with current events, but I happen to be an NBA All Star, average you know with a career average of twenty some odd point you know plus points a game, and you're you're asking me if I'm gonna be comfortable coming off the bench. I mean, flatly he said, "No, I'm not comfortable with that." I didn't come here to do that. I came here to get on the floor and do my thing. And that was not exactly what Houston wanted to hear. And it wasn't long before they had a partner the ways. Because it was it's difficult to plug all those things in together and expect them all to work um, you know, together rather than independently and then apart. Um the Bulls dynamic, and you can see that how that dynamic changed when Tony Kukoc showed up. When Tony Kukoc, well, actually, it happened before Tony Kukoc even got on the team. When uh, Kraus was going around talking about how what a great player Tony Kukoc was, and you know how he was going to do this and that and this with the Bulls, Scottie Pippen, who was underpaid, everyone, no one can argue that. <laughs> was upset and so was Jordan because the way they saw it they're like hold up hold up hold up we're the the your first children we're the guys that got you in this position and now you showing love and respect to somebody else and you ain't even took care of Scotty oh okay <laughs> so there was the games that they played against the uh, Croatian team in the Olympics and Michael and Scotty went out of their way <laughs> to shut Tony Kukoc down. And it was weird because during the game, I remember when I was watching it, I could just see the look on Kukoc's face. He was like, you know, what did, what, what did, I, did I do something? I say something? What did I do wrong? He, what people don't understand is, is that the controversy over here as far as Jerry Krause showing all that love to Kukoc. He didn't know anything about that in Croatia. <laughs> he didn't know anything about that when he was playing over in the EuroLeague. You know, he just saw it as an opportunity to go play against the best, and he the dynamic never crossed his mind. But the dynamic was not just him being in addition to the team, but him getting paid before Scotty got paid. 
Now, the average person would say, well, I mean, come on, man. It's, it's, it's a game. We're all trying to, to, to you know, work in the same direction. And, you know, the money, whatever, it'll come. Look, <laughs> that life is not a long life. At, very few guys make it past 10 or up to 15 years. You're one injury away from being told to take a walk. So, even though Scotty, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll add this too, uh, it wasn't like Scotty wasn't under contract, because he was. <laughs> he signed a long-term deal because of some issues that he was having personally in terms of his father's health and his brother's health. And so he wanted stability. And so he signed a longer-term contract than he normally would have, because back in those days, they didn't have five-year maximum contracts. Um, you know, you can sign to whatever you sign to. I remember Magic signed one, I think, 10 years. Uh, I can't remember the amount, but it was like 10 years, 30, you know, 40 million, which kind of, you know, you looked at the time and you're like, okay, that, that, that sounds good. But over the course of your, you know, time playing for Los Angeles, once your value goes up, man, you're going to look at that, look at those numbers and wish you hadn't locked in. But in Pippen and Jordan's mind, their idea was from the perspective of, look, yeah, he signed that contract, but you guys can let him out of that and sign him to something right, you know, and, and do what's fair. Because this guy, you know, has exceeded his, you know, any expectations. So they took it personal. And when they played against Tony Kukoc, man, <laughs> they were all over this cat and he couldn't he was having trouble even get receiving passes if he passed the ball away he wasn't getting it back <laughs> and when he did get it back if he was on the same side of the floor as Michael he was going to get doubled until he gave up the ball and if I remember correctly I think he had like four points no rebounds I mean it was just it was ugly the first time um, then they played the US again in the final he played a little bit better, but I also think that uh, Scotty and Jordan looked at it from the perspective of, okay, we showed him what time it is, and we're going to beat these guys anyway because, I mean, they were the dream team. <laughs> but, you know, they, the message was sent. It was sent to Tony and it was sent to management that, you know, we're important and we're the ones that make this happen. Yeah, you have ideas, you set up things, you built this organization, that's cool. But what happens on this floor here ain't got nothing to do with you. This is us. And we want our brother respected. And we want him paid right. And we want him happy. So it reached a point with Scotty, man, where Scotty was getting real ugly and saying some things to Jerry Krause that you really shouldn't be saying with somebody who's employing you. <laughs> and, all, I mean, it got to a point to where, you know, Scotty's like, I, I, I don't care if I play here no more. And circumstances made it so that that didn't occur. But that's what I meant when I was talking earlier. It doesn't take a lot to destroy a team dynamic. If somebody who's a major player feels slighted or disrespected, that messes up everything. Depending on how important that person is to what they do. And that leads me into Dennis Rodman. <laughs> 
That film disclosed to me something that I've never seen a player or a coach do ever. And not only did he do it, it worked out. They let Dennis, in the middle of a season, go blow off steam in Vegas. Which, I, to this day, I, I've yet to hear anything like that ever being done again. I've never heard of such a thing, ever. Um, and initially, Phil's attitude was, I'm scared to let him go because we might not get him back. <laughs> and, and, you know, Phil went to Mike and says, hey, man, what do you think? And he said, hey, man, let, you know, let's, let's let him have a couple of days. Now, I'm saying that, and now I'm going to give you the old school version. See, one of the arguments that happens in this day and age, when you start talking about uh, old school players, the way the game was played in the 80s and 90s and all that kind of stuff, is you have arguments over, you know, the physicality and the toughness of the game. Um, the 80s was a little different. The 80s and 90s were different. It was a more physical brand of basketball. And so because of that, people make statements like, oh, the guys like that right now couldn't play then. Saying I'm not, I'm not buying that. Um, like anything else, great players adjust to circumstances and they, they adjust to their situations. And if that was the way the game was being played, then that player would have figured out how to adjust to that. And that also works in the reverse when you start talking about old school players uh, in today's game. Like, you know, a conversation I get into every now and again is about the Wilt Chamberlain, whether that Wilt Chamberlain was that good or not. Well, he was as good as he was for his era because he, he honed his skills to beat the people of his era. A guy with all of his physical skills and gifts probably would have the same skills and gifts guys do now because he would have made adjustments. Because to be the guy he is, he would have had to do so. So that works both ways. But at any rate, Dennis Rodman was the one component in that team that was allowed to just do him. Argue with referees, get in fights. Phil had no problem with any of it. And to me, that's the most impressive thing about Phil Jackson. Now, I don't know how good of an X, or o, X and O's guy Phil is. I have no clue. I, I've never played for him. I, don't, uh, I only know maybe one or two people that even knew the guy. But the one thing I did notice was who his assistants were. And Phil had some good assistants. And one of those assistants was a cat named Tex Winter. And Tex Winter was the guy who uh, created the triangle. And then there were other play, other uh, coaches that were vital. Uh, Jim Clemens, Phil Johnson. These are all longtime NBA assistants. Guys that had some mileage in the league and in you know college and some even high school. And these cats knew what they were doing. And the Bulls' defense literally was as good as their offense. And in an era where people could put hands on people, that's vital. Because if you're a team, the Bulls, you know, through the triangle, the Bulls were very successful at scoring the basketball. But 
depending on what team they played, if they got caught playing slow, if they slowed them down, they stood a better chance. So most most teams did that to them. They would slow them down, try to beat them up a little bit, and, you know, circa the uh, Detroit Pistons. But once Dennis came to that team, because initially it was Horace Grant those first three championship years. But the second years when, when Dennis Rodman came up, you know, he was the guy that added the element of toughness, the element of physical play, and the element of relentlessness that fit in perfect with two other guys who had the same attitude, which was Jordan and Pippen. And you throw three Greyhounds, dirt dogs like that together on the same squad, and uh, you're going to have a hard time beating them cats. And what I found impressive during that, when I was watching The Last Dance, was to see their competitive nature. These cats didn't want to lose a game. (laughs) They showed up to compete and bust their butt every single game. And that's, you know, when the average person doesn't understand what an NBA player's body goes through. When you talk about a game being over, you take a shower, you do your press obligations, you hop on a bus and you hop on a plane. And you normally are, are the road trips are set up for regions. So if you're from, if you're the Lakers and you're flying toward New York City, you play the Knicks one night. The next night, you're probably playing New Jersey. And then the night after that, you're playing Boston. And then the night after that, you're probably playing Philly. And that's four games in a span of about mm, seven days. And then, and this is, you know, going sometimes in the old days, they did back-to-backs, which is you played a game like that, 10 o'clock, you hop, you know, you get on a plane or a bus in some cases, which is rare, but it happens. And you finally fall in the sack at about a good, you know, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. You go to sleep and then you have a game that next night. So you got to get up uh, 9, 10, maybe 11 and go through a walkthrough. And that means they're going to walk you through some of the stuff that the other team, a team that you're playing that night is going to be using. And uh, does those walkthroughs are key because it gives you an idea of what you're going to be going against that evening. Now you just played last night, and you only had you only got you had eight hours rest. Your body hasn't fully recovered. I don't care what anybody says. Then you have to look at the dynamic of having to go out there in front of fans and have the same intensity, play as hard as you did the night before. And see, that, that's something the average fan just don't get. <laughs> that, you know, when you see some night and some guys who was making every jumper last night is missing jumpers tonight, guess what? His legs are burnt. <laughs> he was running up and down last night. Cut him some slack. But a fan who paid $150, $200, he doesn't want to hear any excuses. Nor do I blame him. <laughs> but... That's just the way that that goes. And that's part of um, the conundrum of being a professional athlete in the NBA. Um, This will be the end of segment two. And uh, I'll be out with segment three here in a moment. And I'll finish my uh, conversation about the last dance. 
Welcome to segment three of the SOS Simmons on Sports Radio Show and Podcast. Uh, this particular segment, I'm going to get into, I'm going to finish uh, my thoughts on the uh, ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. Um, of course, with the star being Michael Jordan and the uh, co-players being the rest of the Chicago Bulls. Um, again, what I respect most about that team was their doggedness. These were guys that they came to perform and they understood the platform in which they were on. And they embraced the uh, leadership of the guy who was the best player, but also the most driven guy. Now, I'm going to just come out and say some of the methods that Mike used and some of the things that Mike did to uh, hold his teammates accountable or to get them on the same level uh, as he was. I'm cool with some of it, but there's certain things (laughs) as a player and as a man that I'm just not going to let you do. (laughs) And I, I, I know that people would say, well, you know, man, I guess they would have just cut you. I'd have been okay with that. You're not going to call me out of my name. You're not going to call me the B word. You're not going to call me the P word. You're not doing all that. (laughs) I mean, if you want to motivate me, what you need to do is pull me aside and say, hey, Kev, man, you know, you're not doing what you have to do your job. You need to do so-and-so and so-and-so, man. Pull your head out your butt. Let's get busy. That works for me. The name calling, the disrespect, calling me a bum, trying to get at me in another way is more than likely going to be end up a problem. Um, as a teammate, um, I only ran across a situation like that maybe once or twice in my whole career because I understand the importance of camaraderie. And what was weird about that Bulls team was their camaraderie was based on that dynamic and the players accepted it. And I have to give them a lot of credit for doing so because um, there are hard-headed guys like me (laughs) who aren't going to put up, I mean, not with that kind of nonsense. And I don't know, maybe under the circumstances, had I been lucky enough to be on a team like that, um, that myself and the dynamic leader would have found a middle ground or meeting of the minds so that it wouldn't have come to all that, to where it wouldn't have been him or me or me and him having to get into it or going out to the back but at the same time I was always capable of that as a player and as a human being there's only so much crap I'm gonna take and then after that there's a problem Um, I'm not a guy that enjoys fighting I'm not a guy that enjoys uh, confrontation or conflict but I'm sure not gonna run from it and I noticed that a couple of guys with the Bulls that were a little prickly, like Bill Cartwright, because I remember Bill actually told me this story. (laughs) He said that Jordan one time got on him real bad, and he basically told him, say another word to me, man, I'm going to break your legs. (laughs) And I'm I'm laughing. He's like, no, no, you you understand what I'm saying? I meant that. I was going to break his legs. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, dude, you serious? He said, yeah. Yeah, man, I'd had enough. I mean, you're not going to, I mean, I get what you're trying to do. I get where we're trying to go, all that. 
But all that disrespect and all that other nonsense, man, I'm sorry. But as a man, I can't hang. And I'm not taking any more of it. So tread lightly. (laughs) And see, the fact that his teammates were the kind of guys that, you know, accepted that kind of stuff. I mean, this guy was fighting his teammates. Steve Kerr, Scotty Perrell, a bunch of other people, man. I mean, these were, you know, anybody that he felt like, you know, wasn't living up to standard or was giving him issues or felt like he was they were a drain on the team, he went at these people. And, you know, there are coaches and players that are like that. And I get it. I totally get it. But at some point, you know, it worked out well for them as an organization and a unit. But at some point, man, you know, it, it I, I just can't imagine or understand how a group of grown men can tolerate that kind of stuff when they're out there sweating and busting their butt too. Because, come on now, as good as Mike was, it wasn't like he was perfect. He had his nights too. But I bet you nobody had enough nerve to come up to him and start doing to him what he was doing to them. <laughs> so... With that in mind, I have to uh, look at how that team dynamic worked because uh, a lot of those guys accepted that and accepted the challenge and honed the part of what they did so that they were effective in what they did. And in that regard, it kind of reminds me of the Boston Celtics. Uh, When I was a kid, because, you know, I'm a West Coast kid, even though I loved Bill Russell, I fell in love with Bill Russell because he's from out here. He, he, from out here, he's from Oakland. But I did not like Boston. <laughs> and but I, I was drawn to their team dynamic. I was just drawn to it because man, I've never seen a group of guys that could subjugate themselves to a point to where it was just seamless what they did. It was like what they were doing was effortless. And they made it look easy. And that used to drive me out of my mind. Because <laughs> when I would see Kusi and Bailey Howell and Sat Sanders and Sam and KC Jones and Tommy Heinsohn and uh, John Havlicek, you know, these cats just were, it was seamless. It was like, you know, they fell in line together. They understood how things worked and they just played a system and I don't know how they all got along or how, if they were all like all buddy-buddy. I do remember a conversation I read that Bill Russell had when Bill Russell was saying he, about some of the things he was dealing with in, in Boston from a personal perspective in terms of his race. And I know that he was hurt that more people weren't, uh, more people on the team didn't stand out or say things to the public or say things to him about what he and his family was going through. And I know he took that personally. Um, And I understand why. Because if you can fight together on the court, my problems are your problems there. My problems should be yours everywhere. If you got a teammate in trouble, that's kind of what you do. You come to their aid. You support them. And he didn't feel like that. And I read just recently where Bob Cousy uh, had made the statement that he felt bad about the fact he didn't do more for us. Um... And see, that Bulls team had that same dynamic. They had guys who, you know, fought through the the adverse stuff. They didn't 
They did their jobs. And even when it got rough and when Mike was particularly hard on <laughs> they they never folded. They just did their jobs. And like I said, you know, I'm sure the documentary didn't catch every little sliver of what was going on. But at the same time, you know, it was pretty obvious that these cats understood what it took to win games. And, and let me not forget to point out Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson, as I was about to say earlier, is not, I don't know if he's what kind of X and O guy he is. I know he knows to hire the right people, and I know he knows how to manage players. And that, I can see where people would be like, well, I mean, anybody could coach Shaq and Kobe and or Pippen and Jordan and Robin. Anybody could do that. No. <laughs> Let me be the first to tell you up front, no. It's not an easy job containing those guys' egos, getting them to all row in the same direction, and be committed to the thing that's going to help them win games. Because normally teams blow up because of, you know, where egos cross lines, where guys feel like they're being slighted or they not feel like they're not getting enough attention because of so-and-so. NBA teams blow up like that every day. But the Bulls dismantling didn't come from none of that. They came apart because of management, which is, in my opinion, about the most crazy ass-backwards thing I've ever heard of in my life. (laughs) You know, when a team normally dismantles or changes its dynamic, it's normally because of friction. And it's internal friction. Sometimes the guys themselves don't even realize that there's friction. But it's something somebody said, something somebody did, something that got in the paper, um, you know, whatever. But normally what happens is there's something, some dynamic that has changed what was working and now what you're doing isn't working anymore. And that normally is an internal thing. But the Bulls, nah, it was management. <laughs> and that's the unusual part of it is that you would think management would be doing everything in their humanly possible to keep that, those guys together. But I mean, they flat out said you know, this is the last dance. This will be Phil will be leaving, which I thought was unusual to uh, announce. You know, before, during, in the middle, in the playoffs. By the way, when Phil, the, we were, after we lift up this trophy, Phil's done, and Mike let him know if Phil's done, I'm done. And they're like, okay. Which, like I said, that's Jerry Krause's arrogance in full display. And he, and I'm not sure if he regrets it, but he should. Who wants to be the guy that ruined the you know team that set the NBA record for most victories in a season and won a championship that season? Who wants to be that guy? Apparently, Jerry Krause does. <laughs> so, again, that's what I feel makes that team special um, do I believe that's the greatest basketball team of all time no I don't um, do I believe they're one of the greatest teams of all time no question but I have seen teams that you know pretty doggone good <laughs> um, those Nick teams when they had Willis Reed and uh, to Busher, Bradley Clyde 
Earl Monroe, they had a pretty good basketball team. Um, by the way, Phil was on that team too, <laughs> playing for Red Holtzman. Uh, same thing with the uh, 72 Lakers and the 67 Sixers. Um, those were team dynamics that just worked. When Wilt was with Philly, he had a power forward with him, a guy named Luke Jackson, who was just uh, a 6'10", 6'11", stud muffin, who was a decent perimeter shooter. And so they played the high-low with those two, and they just ran, murdered people. And also Wilt had around him people like Hal Greer, Guy Rogers, <laughs> Billy Cunningham. That ain't bad. <laughs> Chet Walker. <laughs> And uh, when he was in Los Angeles, they built a, a different dynamic around Wilt. Then, too, uh, you had West and Goodrich and Happy Hairston and, uh, you know, a group of guys that just, that ran. Jim, Jimmy McMillan, they just ran. Wilt grab a rebound, they take off. He throws the ball, he throws the ball in the outlet, they're off and running. And the key, and most people don't think about this either, what was a dynamic on that team that was a connection to the Celtics was Bill Sharman was coach. And guess who Bill Sharman played for? Boston Celtics. <laughs> and so he brought that concept of that uh, Red Arbach uh, fast break that he stole from <coughs> John McClendon. <coughs> anyway, sorry. Um, he used that concept to help uh, make the Celtics uh, a team that could score easy baskets or baskets where uh, guys only had to use limited, um, expel limited amounts of energy to get the ball in the basket. The Bulls team, like I said, they were interesting in the fact that they ran some, but they didn't run a lot. And I would put the Bulls in that uh, great team category. Um, now, I'm going to say something that's going to make some Warrior fans mad. Uh, <laughs> That 73-9 and nine Warriors team, I do not feel was on the same level as those teams. I would put them as one of the top five teams of all time. But the reason why I would look at those guys differently is because as good as they were, they still had holes. There were things you could exploit. And they had, you know, defensively they were good but not great. Um... And if you made it difficult on their two main scores to score, um, that team was, you know, they were beatable, believe it or not, even though they won 73 games that year. And that and Cleveland proved that. Uh, a couple guys got hurt. And, you know, the it, it changed the dynamic of how they had to play the Cavaliers and they lost that game. They, won't, they lost several games in a row. <laughs> But I thought the Warrior team with Kevin Durant, the second year that Durant was there, was just, that, that, that's pretty good basketball team. <laughs> and they were good from the perspective of they had good bench help. They had uh, a scoring dynamic where you had two sharp shooters, I mean, basically, you know, freaking snipers out on the perimeter wings on each side of the floor. And then you had the one guy in the league that does not need a screen or anybody else to be around him to score baskets, and that is Kevin Durant. And you add that element with two other guys who are going to be on different sides of the floor, and they're going to make shots. That I don't know how you beat a team like that. 
because they've got you spread out all over the place, so you can't double. Um, you got one. You got a seven foot guy who handles the ball like a guard, can create his own shot, and you know it's not like even if you're with him, you know he's got like a nine foot reach. <laughs> So his shot's going to get off. He's not bothered by anybody who's going to guard him defensively. You know, you, you put all that together, that's a pretty good basketball team. But what made this Bulls team, in my opinion, one of the better teams, and you could make an argument for the greatest team ever, was their defense. I cannot put into words. When you watch the series, especially against Utah, and you're seeing games in 84, 81, <laughs> 88, 84, that kind of nonsense. What that tells you is, is A, it's physical. B, the uh, there's it's, it's very difficult to get a shot off the first or second pass. And the third thing it shows is, is that people are being taken out of their comfort zones and forced to take shots they don't like or normally like taking. And with the physicalness of the league at that time, that's what could make uh, even really good teams, if you can handle them physically, they, they were beatable. How you know if you could if you could physically handle them? And uh, during that era, you know, and it, it, the, the league actually even changed its dynamic um, once Jordan. Ascended to the throne as far as you know the best player in the game, there was a uh, element where the you know the physicality changed. I'm not saying it was you know not not as physical, but it wasn't as over the course of a game. The physicality was different. Like uh, my son and I were watching the Lakers in the '80s and when Kurt Rambis was going for that layup and basically got body slammed. <laughs> my son looked at me and went, "Wait a minute." They shot free throws, gave him a tech. They didn't throw him out? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, nah. What do you mean they didn't throw him out, man? He, Dad, he tackled him. I said, welcome to the NBA in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. <laughs> it was a physical game. And if you were a guy that was a shrinking violet or did not like uh, the physical violence of playing basketball, then you wouldn't, you would, good luck to you because it's going to be hard. Because that's just, it was just the way it was. And this Bulls team, they transformed from the team that won the first three, it transformed when they won the second three into a much more physical and defensively vice grip crushing basketball team. I mean, a team could be playing with them for a minute to be close and maybe down by one or two. And then the Bulls turn up this D and you go three, four, five minutes and you haven't scored. <laughs> and, and they've scored 10, 12, 14 points during that period. Now you're down 14. A game that you were once in, now you're down 15. And they, they would do that at certain periods during the game where their defensive prowess would just take a game over. I saw them play the Kings up in Sacramento. And that, that freaked me out. <laughs> when I watched them just basically, the Kings went probably, I don't know, damn near 10 minutes. They couldn't buy a basket. <laughs> and guys didn't work hard enough to, to get it. 
And that was the difference between quality teams in those days and ones that weren't. And at that time, the Kings weren't. Later on, they got they got reached that point, but that's another story. Um, but what the last, last dance basically left me with was um, a glorification and crowning of the legacy of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Um, I don't think it was necessary because I think we all understood just how good he was and how good they were. But this was like a video documentary cementing that as if it needed it. And I'm not necessarily sure what the point was because, I mean, you'd have to be pretty blind or pretty dumb to not understand just how good that team was and how good Mike was. But um, this was a glimpse inside so that the general public could see some of the dynamics and some of the other things and inner workings of uh, that ball club. And with that said, I think that you're going to have those that uh, understand where Mike was coming from and why Mike is who he is. And then you're going to have some people who are going to say, you know, man, that guy was doing too much and blah, blah, blah. So, um, but my opinion of it was, um, it was a, uh, definitely in a, a, uh, a film that gives you the idea or a film that showed what the NBA is, what, uh, how difficult it is to manage a career in that league, how difficult it is to be a champion and what it takes to uh, maintain the kind of chemistry that wins games. And, uh, you know, people got a firsthand look at that. And I think it's something that most people will never forget. So uh, with that said, that is segment three of the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. Welcome to segment four, the final segment of the Simmons on Sports uh, radio podcast, radio show and podcast. Um, I'd like to uh, give a commentary or make a commentary about uh, the upcoming uh, situation in terms of how professional sports is going to deal with on the comeback or the reopening of professional sports. Um, after the coronavirus uh, shutdown. Um, the NBA, from what I hear, is considering uh, one of a couple of options. One of those options is to uh, sequester Disney World, which is like some 33-acre area with three different gyms and all that other kind of stuff. Um and have the players sequester there on the campus there um, and basically just stay there and play without fans um, other than uh, a crew to cover the game and uh, to broadcast the games. And uh, also they're also talking about maybe doing it there, part of it there and part of it in Las Vegas, which is uh, also, I think, a viable uh, concept and idea as well. But what the concern is of mine is that at this point, 
no matter how you look at it, the NBA is this season is going to have an asterisk next to it. And um, no matter who wins it, it's going to feel as if it's a difficult, you know, that the circumstances, because they weren't normal, um, there'll be some uh, disagreement as to the validity of that championship, which, in my opinion, would be unfair, but doesn't matter. Uh, that's how people are. Um, it's just like uh, the Toronto Raptors of last year. Toronto Raptors did win the NBA championship, but there's always going to be those that said, well, I mean, you know, KD got hurt and, you know, Clay Thompson got hurt and blah, blah, blah. The players, they don't care because, you know, they still got their rings. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that basketball fans do where, um, you know, they're not going to receive full credit for um, what they accomplished. And, and that sucks, but it is what it is. And I think that's going to be the same with this uh, NBA season as well. And it's unfortunate, but at the same time, um, you know, it, they, they, they kind of want to have a conclusion to the season or otherwise it's not going to feel right. And then, then the other rumor I hear is you're going to move back the start time of uh, the following season to December. Which is something that I've heard a lot of people talk about before. That they thought that the NBA season should be moved back anyway so as to not be uh, coinciding so much with the beginning of football. But, um, you know, the NBA model so far has worked fairly well. So I'm not sure if this is going to be a permanent idea, even if it happens that way. But... um, from all intents and purposes, they're going to have to give these guys, um, after this is over, the opportunity to um, get some extra rest. And uh, I'm not even sure how the regular season is going to shake out. Um, you're looking, I think there's 20 games left of what would be a regular season, and then you got playoffs. Um, I would imagine that if they're going to be playing uh, in July, that's going to be a situation where um, they're going to just that they. I would think they would go right to a playoff because a regular season playing those last twenty games. I mean, what's that going to do for Golden State? <laughs> they, Golden State was, was dead last, five games behind their next trailer. Uh, they're what are they playing twenty games for? Now, like I said, I'm not sure. Um, how the Warriors would feel about that. But I'm of the opinion that it wouldn't serve anybody any good to play the rest of those games that, you know, they should just go right into a playoff, but I'm not in charge. <laughs> but I would, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what decisions they make. Um, as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, from what I've heard, they're looking at an 82-game schedule, talking about beginning right around what normally would have been the All-Star game or All-Star break. And then uh, pretty much play those 82 games and then begin their postseason. Now, a lot of people think baseball plays too many games anyway. (laughs) So the idea or concept of them uh, playing only 82 games might be a good thing. But the players are having issues because they're saying they want full pay for a half a season. And so the Players Association is in conflict 
with the ownership group, with the ownership and uh, the league itself. Because what they're seeing is they would like, you know, you have some guys that are resistant, some out of worry in terms of safety, and others out of worry of how they're going to get paid. Um, at this point, and say, I'm never going to be the guy that's going to say that somebody shouldn't say anything about how they get paid. I'm never going to say that because um, I know how the league is. I know how life is. And for guys who worked hard to get in that position, um, you know, they, they, they want to get paid. But at the same time, with these circumstances based upon um, what was needed to do as far as a shutdown, um, I'm not sure if that's a viable option for them to be able to say that they need to get full pay. So that's a dynamic that's going to work itself out here pretty quickly. It's going to have to if they're going to um, even play the 82 games that they're talking about. Because um, they're going to have to give these guys an opportunity to play their ways in, play their ways into shape. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a condensed season, if any. So because the weather starts to get bad, you know, at about late September. So and they, they don't want to move the playoffs up into November because you might be playing a game in a snowstorm. <laughs> so I don't think that's going to happen. The NFL at this point has probably been least affected uh, by this shutdown because for them it happened at a time where their season was over. So they don't have as many issues in terms of things being thrown off uh, as far as their scheduling or as far as how they're going to um, restart a season. because That's not even an issue for them. The issue for them, I believe, is going to be um, how to combat the social distancing and how to combat if a player comes down with it. Um, when they're in training camp, I'm sure that they're going to make sure that <clears throat> everyone is... Uh, you know, they're going to do temperatures and all that kind of stuff. But if one guy comes up positive in a training camp situation around all of his other teammates and all that other stuff, that could ensue a panic. Because um, then you get into the financial liability of a player and the financial uh, pocketbooks of the owners and the league itself. Because now you're talking about a guy that can't play, and how many other people is he going to put in that same situation? Um, so it's going to be a delicate situation for the NFL in terms of how they're going to choose to um, open, open their season, how they're going to uh, do things in terms of, you know, football's a group sport. <laughs> You, know, you got 22 guys on the field. You got 53 guys on the sideline. Um, it's going to be complicated. And um, it'll be interesting to see um, how they address that and whether or not they have any issues if somebody happens to test positive or somebody gets sick. And that's going to be the same thing for NCAA football as well. Um, because, you know, they didn't have spring ball. Their recruiting is, you know, going to be kind of weird because, you, you know, you're you know, people don't want you in their house, <laughs> you know, because the last thing you might do is end up getting somebody else sick or, or if a coach ends up testing positive, that could be like major time disaster. Um, could, you know, be like typhoid Mary. Everybody see the guy coming. They just run for the hills or tell them they don't want him in their house. 
<laughs> but at the end of the day, the concern is going to be NCAA football. Basically, is nothing about if it's if it's not about the fans. Uh, when they you know pan the stadium, you know at Auburn or wherever else, um, that's what NCAA football is about. And I'm not sure if they're going to ever arrive at a point in the near future where that's going to be cool, where it's going to be okay to uh, have a full stadium, people sitting next to each other, drinking beer, <laughs> you know, uh, touching things, close people sitting right next to each other. I, I, I don't know how that's going to work. And um, if that's not done, there's no revenue. With no revenue, there's, you know, there's bigger issues. So the NCAA is going to have its own complications, and I'm not sure how they're going to address them. But I've, you know, they, they pretty much let you know from the start that there's going to be a college football season one way or another. So I don't doubt that that's going to happen. It's just going to be how it's applied or uh, how they decide they're going to make that happen. So with that said, I'd like to thank uh, any of the listeners out there for listening to the SOS broadcast, Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast. Um, next week, I'm going to bring in another guest. Um, I'm not sure who it's going to be yet. I've got a couple people in mind. Um, I'm going to bring some people in to, uh, uh, that should offer some pretty decent conversation. So um, thanks for listening. And uh, good night from the SOS Simmons on Sports radio show and podcast.